when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. George Bush doesn't care about black people. They have a Black History Month, but we don't have a White History Month. Well, all we've ever been taught is white history. If it was not for the love and respect shown to me by black women, those right-wing, ultra-conservative, alt-right haters, they would have me believe I'm too black, I'm too confrontational, I'm too tough, and I'm too disrespectful of them. But now, I know I'm simply a strong black woman. in a time where corporations are treated like people and people are treated like things. They promote legislation that attacks voting rights, the poor, LGBT citizens, the immigrant community, and civil rights that are lewd, mean-spirited, and fundamentally contrary to what our democracy is supposed to be about. What is bad is not what they are doing. What would be bad is for us not to fight back. Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIVLP and we are broadcasting live from the Ace Hotel. Can I get a round of applause for everybody here? Thank you guys so much. My name is Mark Gallandere. We are also streaming live on 1230 AM WBOK. Uh, and uh, it's a pleasure to have uh, with me. having technical difficulties yes. as usual. Uh, as uh, always, uh, my uh, very close friend, Kenny Francis, uh, one of the founding members of Indivisible. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. I feel very, very nervous every time we start a show and there isn't technical difficulties. So I'm glad that like that happened, something didn't work, so now I'm good. Um, excited to be back in the Ace Hotel um, for our monthly event, um, the day after the Saints. Um, now we can all go back to pretending like we were boycotting the NFL. I just, I just, I just like love. Like, it's funny that last month we had like Portia and Natty on, and they were talking about the performative nature of activism. Right. Sometimes, and I love how at the beginning of this year, everyone was like, "I'm protesting the NFL. I'm not watching the Saints win like four games in a row." And everybody's like, "Well, do we have to protest all the teams?" I mean, was, the Bensons are kind of nice. It was hard to do. So now we can all go back to protesting. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, anyway, thank y'all for for coming here, and thank y'all for. Uh, tuning into Resistance Radio. Uh, today's the day that we remember the great leader and revolutionary thinker, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. There are many things to be said of the great Dr. King, and quite frankly, I'm woefully incapable of doing so, as well as speaking off the top of my head about someone that I admire as much as I do, and this is why I'm reading these prepared remarks. I want everyone here to please recognize, and I'm sure you all do, that Dr. King was a revolutionary 
and as well as a revolutionary thinker. He called for equity at a time when white supremacy was silently understood to be the law of the land. To that end, I would like to acknowledge uh, Dr. King's great words of the three evils of society, the ones that opened this very show. On August 31st, 1967, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the three evils of society speech at the National Conference on New Politics, which is the most prophetic and revolutionary address to date on the questions of militarism, poverty, and racism. And we are now experiencing coming to the surface of these triple-pronged sickness was how Dr. King framed the problem that has been lurking within our body politic from its beginning, identifying the sickness of racism, excessive militarism, and, and uh, militarism, as well as materialism, and considering that these three problems as the plague of Western civilization. But it is the following words by Dr. King that inspire me daily, and I, and I do mean that. And that is that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And it is a pleasure, speaking of justice, to introduce our guest here for Resistance Radio on this day that we remember Dr. Martin Luther King, and that is the Honorable Judge Calvin Johnson. Judge Johnson was the first elected African-American judge in the Orleans Parish <coughs> Criminal District Court. He was also the first African-American Chief Justice, uh, the Chief Judge of the Criminal Court, and the first Louisiana judge to have mental health court, as well as one of the first judges to implement drug court. I will also say that, uh, that Judge uh, Calvin Johnson was one of the very first show host on this fledgling station four years ago on WHIV, and he's held that seat Wednesday at five o'clock, uh, and now uh, it does so with his amazing granddaughter who produces the show and runs the show for him. And so I, I'd love to have a, a, a round of applause for this amazing individual here, Judge Calvin Johnson. And I guess just to get started, your story is amazing. I, I never tire of hearing about it. Can you uh, tell us a bit about your upbringing and, and what well, inspired uh, you to? You. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for being here. This is such a great venue. And I come to the ACE all the, all the time, actually. First time though in this, uh, in this uh, being able to sit here and look out there, but I come all, all the time. To, but to be here on this day is a good thing to do and to be and to talk to hopefully with some of your audience and to talk about a lot of this history. Yes, I was all what you just said and I'm not anymore because I'm retired and I'm not anymore. Uh, but I, uh, I grew up in Louisiana, South Louisiana, uh, in a little town outside of Baton Rouge is where I grew up. I participated in civil rights demonstrations there, and I shared this with you earlier today, but was, was arrested there in 63, was um, prosecuted in 64, uh, was convicted in the same, and if my uh, children was in here, they would say, well, are you gonna show the scars? And so, uh, you know, hey, I could do that if y'all wanna see some scars. But I hopefully won't have to do, do just that. Then, then my life unfolds, and so hopefully we will talk about it unfolding. The, the, the Martin Luther King, though, being in the 60s and listening to this man in the 60s and seeing this man in that sense, uh, in, in essence, close up, uh, it was just an amazing thing. And to be in Louisiana in those years in Louisiana, especially in 63 before the March on Washington, I have a brother two years older who went to the March on Washington my dad wouldn't allow both of his sons to go because he thought that uh, death, a lot of death would happen in D.C. in 63, 
and he was, as my brother, if he was here, would say, he was he was had no problem with sacrificing him. He just didn't want to sacrifice you, and so and so I didn't go to the march. I didn't make the march on Washington. But again, those years are, are those years, and they unfolded uh, as as a lot in this room, I guess, know how they unfolded. It's so though that I was there for some of that unfoldment. So with all of that, how did you end up getting into law, particularly given your, wow. your early experiences with it? Uh, again, I, I was arrested in 63, prosecuted in 64 on, uh, on a, a extended probation. Then I, was, uh, I, I had uh, an, uh, an area of Louisiana that I could, could be in, and I couldn't be outside that area of Louisiana. It included uh, Southern University in Baton Rouge, where I went to undergrad at, at Southern in Baton Rouge. Uh, and finish uh, undergrad there. But, but before um, 63, and again, in 63, I'm 16 years old. In 62, I was 15 years old in 62, and I saw this guy who was, I mean, a tremendous high school football player. He was um, a high school a halfback. He had a scholarship to go to play football in Arkansas to uh, HBCU, Afro, uh, historical black college there. Uh, he was hanging with this white uh, girl in Plaquemine, Louisiana. That wasn't good. He gets charged with aggravated rape. He gets prosecuted uh, in uh, Plaquemine. And I shared some of this with you. But uh, if for those of you who have seen Kill a Mockingbird, there's the courtroom scenes there. And then there's a, there's a courtroom in Plaquemine that looks just like that, uh, with the little piece there and the, the black people sitting on top and the white people sitting on bottom. I was sitting on top and I watched the trial. I watched him get convicted and of course knew that that was a travesty. And so that's kind of started there. I met lawyers in 63, 64. I met these lawyers. Uh, one was Lois Eli who died recently, but was a, a, an amazing African-American black lawyer here in New Orleans. Uh, I met uh, Jack Nelson, white lawyer, but who who was a lawyer who integrated um, Tulane University. Uh, he was a part of the lawyering group that represented Ruby Bridges, who integrated schools here in 59 and 60. He, um, uh, he, he, I met him. And so uh, those two guys I knew, in essence, growing up. And so all of that, I guess, propelled me to, to law. I really wanted to be, though, actually a history teacher. I wanted to be a history teacher. That's really what I wanted. To, to, I wanted to be a history teacher. My daddy, of course, still being you a, if, if you if you've got time. Well, <laughs> I still want to be a history teacher. I'm saying we yeah. can still use you. Well, right. I, I yeah. want to be, and I intend to be. Actually, <laughs> that and, and if my wife was here, she'd go, oh "My God!" But I, I really intend to teach teach history. I do. I, that's because I wanted to do that. My dad, being the sexist that he was, said, "Boy, women teach." So I, that was my dad. You know, he, you know, hey, he, that's who he was. And so, but, but again, I end up in, in law in 75, I end up in law school at Loyola, betwixt uh, undergrad school at Southern from 69 to 73. I was in the Air Force, in the Air Force because I had a commission, and I shared some of this, but I had a commission in the Army because uh, I was in ROTC, and I said, you know, y'all must be crazy. I'm a, I'm a guy on probation. I just got, I mean, I mean really? You think I'm going to go to Vietnam and fight? I mean, come on, let's be real. So I, I, I joined the Air Force as an enlisted man. I did four years there. I so get you can out. just switch like that? 
Well, I couldn't just switch like that, no. I had to do a lot of begging pardon to people who was really upset with me when I, when I left college and I went to Seattle, Washington, where my sister was, with my intent to go to Canada. But that didn't yeah. work out well, too, because coal didn't work well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I came back to South Louisiana, and with the draft board, I said to the draft board, uh, people, please forgive me. I'm sorry. I'll do something, and I'll go in the Air Force. And they allowed me to go in the Air Force and not to jail. They allowed me to go in the Air Force. And I did four years there. I get out, and I end up at law school in 75 at Loyola. And I, then I meet again Jack Nelson, who I had met when I was in uh, high school. I meet him again there. And I get out of law school there, and, and Jack is running the Loyola Criminal Law Clinic. And he hires me as the director of the criminal law clinic. This is in 81, 81, 82. And so I do that for, for the rest of that decade. Then I run for judge, and I get elected judge. And, the, and, and so now we get that judging, yeah. that judging thing. Yeah, so, so, yeah I was going to say, I mean, uh, running for judge at that point, I, I mean, the history is such that you were the first African-American uh, judge to have been elected in Orleans Parish. Is that that's correct? That, that's correct, yes. And when you were running for that, what was, uh, what was that like? I mean, what was that like to, to recognize? I would imagine that there were other people that had run and probably had not won. So what was that like to, to face that? I mean, really, that was really the hand of Jim Crow that was still... Oh, it was that, that had That was still, I would imagine, it was it, quite strangling. It was, it, it was there... Part the reason I ran in 91, I yet on some level I wanted to be a judge. On another level, this man, Jack Nelson, who was for me like a guru. I mean, this man was a man. And he had uh, run for a judge in the late 70s. Uh, and he lost. And he had run against uh, the guy who was the judge of Section E of the criminal court, which is the section I ran for. I wasn't running against that same judge. I was running against his son. I'm sorry, that's not accurate. I was running it for that seat. His son had moved on to the appellate court. But I was running for that seat because that's kind of what he, he would wanted me to do. But now I didn't, and I don't think he did think either that I would get elected. There were, uh, there were six other people in the race. One of them was an, uh, a white guy who was uh, Italian and had lots of money and spent a lot of money. I had little and, and spent little. And uh, at the, uh, in, in the finals of that, in the primary, in the general election of that, I thought I lost. And I called and congratulated him for winning. And, and lo and behold, there were two precincts or so out. One of them was across the river in Algiers, which was a primarily, it was a predominantly white precinct. But a, 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 a lady over there who lived over there had combed her neighborhood and asked people wow. to vote for me. True story. Wow. And the other precinct was in the parish prison where uh, they had allowed these folk who, who could vote and was eligible to vote to vote. I carried those two precincts, which is how I got, I got elected by, wow. by a, yeah. a couple Every of 300 folks. This is why That's yeah. how I got Every elected. Every vote matters. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got elected. This is less than, Jill Stein Much less than a vote for, for yeah, precinct. Sure. Much less than a vote for precinct. But, and again, I never thought I would, I didn't really think I would get elected. I really didn't. I, I love Jack Nelson. I didn't think, I, and I thought I would be back at Loyola teaching. At Loyola, my children would go to 
the good Catholic Jesuit schools and the Jesuits would pay for it and we'd all live happily ever after. And that didn't happen. That didn't happen. So I want going back just a little bit, um, thinking about like your early experiences with the law. One, like getting caught up in the system, mm -hmm. protesting yourself. The second being that like abominable court case that you witnessed. So it's 1991, you're a newly elected judge, and that's like your history. And you're facing what I'm sure are ending the crack 80s, which is just like a torrent mm -hmm. of people coming into your court from the war on drugs. How do you look at that and say, yeah, yeah, yeah this is going to well, work out? We, we didn't really have, crack was not epidemic in New Orleans in 90 or 91, but heroin was. And so in the 80s, uh, it was heroin. And again, in the 80s, I was again at, at Loyola representing a folk in the criminal defense clinic, running the clinic, representing a lot of people who uh, had heroin issues. And I, I met a lot of folk, both, on, both in terms of people who were heroin addicted, but also people who were in that treatment aspect. And of course, I was, uh, I guess, in my middle late, early 30s, middle 30s or something. You know, it's hard to take back that far, <laughs> but somewhere at that, that point in time. But, it, but, but I was at a point in time when, when I thought that, you know, I was about to use some words that I guess we can't, because this is radio and we don't have seven seconds delay. You yeah, are I can't a, use a DJ. But I thought that my feces <laughs> didn't stink. I thought I was the, the, you know, all of that in the bag of chips. So I thought that I knew all of the, the uh, ways to solve that problem. And so I thought when I was elected to this judgeship that I would be a judge for six years. That was the, the length of a term. I would deal with those issues and, 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 uh, and I, would, I would leave that, because I would solve it in six years. You know, again, I'm 40 some years old at that point, 41s, twos. And I thought that um, I would, six years would be long enough uh, for me to solve that problem. I'm not making this up, guys. Y'all <laughs> so may think I am. But I really, <laughs> truly thought that. And I thought then I would be a judge for six years, and I'd go back to Loyola, and I would, I would go back to teaching school, and I would again do what I was doing before. That's kind of what I thought. But of course, that never happened because the reality of the drug problem, but also the reality of how our treatment was and the reality of Louisiana in terms of how it treated it or not, and how it, it, it punished it, which is what it did, was, was really overwhelming. In all honesty, that was absolutely overwhelming. So by 94, 93, I was uh, doing uh, a, a thing called Volunteers in Court that I had a little program, started doing that, and then from that morphed into to, uh, drug court. Which, which came after uh, the first drug court started in Miami. Uh, I was trying to remember the judge's name in Miami who started the court, but who started drug court. And then in, in New Orleans, there was uh, a couple of other judges who were uh, really, really more, actually more engaged at this than me, in all honesty, much more so than I, in terms of going forward with that. So they. They, uh, a couple of them, started drug court first. And then by 94, I was doing, I was doing drug court. But again, I, I was by 96, at the end of my term, I was very frustrated in terms of doing that, very frustrated with being a judge, very frustrated 
uh, with the reality of Louisiana, the reality of now we're in the midst of mass incarceration, in the midst of, of how the law is now changing and we're changing then to deal with the issues. And we had changed in Louisiana from the middle 80s in terms of law from, uh, from where uh, you, could, you could suspend or place in, in drug treatment uh, people with, with, what, uh, with drug issues, including possession of with intent to distribute drugs. Uh, you, could pe you, could do, you could place people in the drug treatment who was charged with other offenses, felony offenses, but if you could show that the issues, and this is in the early 90s now, if you could show that the issues were drug, was, was drug driven, that is because of their drug uh, addiction, then they could go to drug treatment. Mm -hmm. By 96, all that had changed. The, the Louisiana legislature got rid of all of those laws. They had made punishment for possession with the intent to distribute heroin, life without parole. They had, all of that had happened by 96. The laws had changed and all of it. And so actually, I didn't want to run for re-election. This is, again, absolute truth. Didn't want to run for re-election. And then I ran, with a lot of convincing, ran for another term. And that, that next term, which is now we're at to getting close to, the, to 2000, but the next term, uh, 97, 8, those years, is when it became clear that drug court itself was not, uh, could, was not able to deal with the real reality of this. The real reality of it was the fact that, that um, that so many of the people who came to court with, with what was obviously a drug problem, but was also as obvious, but not as clearly seen, they were co-occurring. They had, they had mental health issues. And so it was obvious that drug court really didn't work for this population. Drug court is narrowly sculpted. It has, it has, it's based on the abilities of individuals to do this, to do that, do that, to that, to that, and therefore you get out of drug court, et cetera. But if you have a mental health issue, you can't do this, this, and this because, because the mental health issue becomes so, so predominant. And so then again in, in Miami, uh, a, drug, a judge again in Miami comes up with the notion of, well, maybe what we ought to do is drug court. And this judge, again, this is by 99-ish or so, 98, 99-ish or so, but, but um, uh, he comes up with, with, a, with this first fledgling thing called drug court. By 2001, uh, 2001, going into 2002, we had, we had uh, started basically a mental health court. I had started basically a mental health court here in New Orleans. But to get the treatment providers, Dr. Derry, to get the treatment providers, Dr. Derry. <laughs> because you're a person. No because, you're you're a person yeah, I'm going to go ahead and look at you, but I say this, to get the treatment <laughs> providers to recognize that, that this is an issue that you have to treat, and you have to treat in a co-occurring fashion. You have to treat it collaboratively. And so the people who treated those with drug problems said, of course, that the problem this co-occurring individual had was a mental health problem. The people who treated those with mental health issues said that the problem was a drug problem. So neither of them would treat that person. This is absolutely the deal. Neither of those treatment entities would actually treat that person who was co-occurring, they both would look at the other in terms of that. And so then in 2001-ish, 2-ish in New Orleans to get them to, 
to actually do this meant that I had to, um, to subpoena some of them to come to my court, that is the treatment providers, to come to my court. Wow. And I had to make it clear to them, I don't give a, and I'm getting using that S word, but I don't right. care. I don't care how y'all do. It's his money if we get fined. It's my, it, it. I don't care how y'all do this. I, 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 that's not y'all issue. But y'all going to treat him. You're going to treat these people, or I'm going to put you in jail. <laughs> now, that's just, that's just the way the game go. I can't do anything else, but I can do that. Yeah, there you go. So you're going to provide care for this population. You're going to provide some kind of care. So if you have to come to my court, and you sit over there, and you sit over there, but you're going to do this. So that is, is, is uh, so we get into to doing it. And they discover, they also discovered, though, that I said co-occurring in terms of mental health and addiction. But in, in New Orleans, as elsewhere, they eventually discovered, this is a population that is actually co-occurring, that is actually mentally ill, drug addicted, but some are developmentally disabled. So you have this three proned problem in terms of how you treat people, and you have a system, delivery system in, in New Orleans and elsewhere that was in silos in terms of how they provided treatment, because again, the developmental dis disability people, they didn't do it, da, 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 da. And so to get them to, to provide care to this population was the effort. And it, but it, but it, it, by 2004, getting into 2005, in New Orleans, we were actually doing it reasonably well, doing it well enough that uh, for, in September of 2005, we were to be a demonstration court for well, mental in health. September court. of 2005. In September of We were supposed to be uh, a. Yeah, you hear yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you see, <laughs> okay. We were supposed to be a demonstration court. There were four demonstration courts in America oh, for oh, mental oh, health. Oh, New Orleans. And so New Orleans, Orleans was supposed to do September of five, and we were going to have folk come to da da da. Well, of course, as, as you know, September 2005 never came in New Orleans. Right, August 29. We still waiting for it to happened, come. Right. Yeah, it never came. <laughs> And, but that was how it was supposed to, to happen. And so from 2000, of course, from 2005 forward, is, is it, we did all we've had to do to become where we are today in New Orleans. And, and, and all, of, all of the impact of, of, of that, that uh, federally driven storm uh, impacted every aspect of New Orleans, including the justice system, including how we provided care, and including all of that. And by 2007, I just again, I could not do it anymore. Yeah. And so I retired or quit. I, I, I like to say I retired. That's not true. I quit. <laughs> uh, but I, it, this is 2007, and I quit. In 2000, and I quit at the end of 2007. In March of 2008, the, um, the, the Metropolitan Human Service District, which is the entity that is, is geared in, in Orleans Parish and in two other locations in Plaquemine Parish and in St. Bernard, the entity geared to provide behavioral health care. The guy who was running it quit because there were all kinds of issues, da, 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 he quit. The, the governor and others thought that since I was the mental health guy, that I could run the agency. So in March of eight, I quit judging and at, the end of, and at the end of December of seven, in March of eight, now I'm running 
the agency that is, um, that is supposed to provide this care. And, uh, and I was supposed to do that for six months. That's what, my, that's what I said to, to them. I would do this six months. You'll hire a regular person, not me. Get, a, get somebody regular to do this. And again, I'm going to go back to Loyola, which is where I've been trying to go back. <laughs> since, since I'm Sensing go back. a theme here. There you go. I'm going to go back. To, now I'm it's going to be your grandkids that are going to go there. I'm going to go back to right. Loyola. So my children <laughs> yeah, can go, right. there you go. I'm going to go back to Loyola. I'm going to drink wine, eat cheese like the rest <laughs> of the law professors and live happily ever after. Right. That's, that was my goal. That never happened either. MHST kept you. It kept me from 2008 to 2015. Right. <laughs> so I didn't leave that to 2015. That's like the most New Orleans thing well, ever. It's well, like, I do this now, for six months. Well, wait for it. Years. That's what I ended up with him. Right. It, <laughs> that's what I ended up with I, him. I'm, I'm happy to be part of the story. I didn't realize I was yeah, part yeah, of the story. Yeah, yeah, that's why I ended up with him. And so here, and here we are. Here we are. Uh, if you're tuning in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV LP. This is Resistance Radio. We are proudly streaming live on 1230 AM WBOK. My name is Mark Allendary. With me today is Kenny Francis, as always. And it's an honor and pleasure, as y'all have been listening to the amazing story of Judge uh, Calvin Johnson. Um, what I think you were describing to a large degree is what we now in medicine refer to as the social determinants of health. Um, and that, in the, essentially the social determinants of health are, is loosely defined as, uh, as a, a large number of different variables that, that individuals typically are born into. And it's typically the first one is poverty and how folks are born into a life of poverty. And then with that comes a large uh, uh, multiple other variables or series of activities that uh, as a child one cannot help uh, grow up within, for example, uh, maybe uh, witnessing violence within their family or having a, a parent that has uh, been incarcerated or having been exposed to lead uh, in, their, uh, in the walls or lead in the waters uh, uh, or poor education. These are what we refer to as social determinants of health, which then ultimately lead to potentially um, uh, either um, uh, drug use or criminal courts or mental health and at the time, you were starting to kind of, you were on the forefront before even medicine had a word for it. When we refer to it as the social determinants of health, this is a fairly new term that we use. Eight or nine years ago, when I first started to lecture about it, there was no, I had no word for it. There was nothing to say about it. But I would imagine 15 or 20 years ago, when you were starting to see it on the front line, that must have been something that was unfolding on a regular basis for you. Was there a, a case or two that you could kind of highlight that really was like an aha moment or something oh, where you kind of saw it put all together? I uh, so many, uh, so many in terms of, in, in terms of looking at the, the the flood of people who were coming into the, the justice system, who uh, who was there, and the reason they were there, of course, they they, they brought with them the the obvious. Criminal court, the criminal justice issues. They they committed crimes. They they did this that or whatever they did. That's how they got there. But then it was so obvious that, I mean, you 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 could literally see them come into court, and and at the at the literally if this is the me here and and my little blackness of robe and them standing there, and to see them, knowing man that's just something that's that's something wrong with this person. Now, I don't know, I, I may not know exactly from a medical perspective what the wrong thing is, but I'm not blind. And neither, for that matter, is the, the system itself. 
it is just do that we refuse to see. But it's just that we couldn't because it was as obvious as that microphone is there, that that person standing at it uh, is there because not be, is there because of these health issues, and because of these health issues is the reason for the criminal the, the criminal issue. That's the obviousness of it, and it and it got to the point of so bad, the bad thing that it came to when when I would tell a parent in the late nineties or the early two thousands because of the lack of care, the lack of real health care, for people. To well then could tell the police that he broke in your car, so he'd get arrested. That was the only way they could get help. Tell the police wow. that he brought he robbed you. Tell the police that he did something to you, so the police will arrest him, bring him to jail. I could then bring him into my court, and then I could control then his his treatment. And uh, and that, yeah, but that this was absolutely absolutely reality. I meet people. Uh, today, who, who parents of people today and some of the individuals themselves who I dealt with in that fashion, that is, is I, and, well, that is, I dealt with in that fashion. But I, I, I remember um, a parent who, uh, who became a friend of mine, but who, who came to, to my court and to tell me that he didn't know what to do with his son. Uh, he, he didn't know what to do with his son. And he, he, his parents are that, that his other children were good children. His other children were going to college and da 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 and they all were living happily ever after. But this particular child was, was and, and you know, Dr. D, how, how people who are, are co-occurring, that is, is, who are bipolar, who are paranoid schizophrenic, who, who will do all kinds of destructive kinds of things, all kinds of destructive things, and what to do. Well, then again, have him arrested. You have him arrested, you give him to me, and you walk away. And I would have to tell that to parents. Wow. You walk away. Because I didn't know at that point in time the, um, the, the issues with enabling. And you know, the parent who was enabling the child and all and that, I didn't know that. I did know, though, that you, got to, you have to, I can't deal with you and him. So, so you, got to, you give it to me and you go out the door. And then he's mine. And so from this point forward, then what will happen to your son is going to be up to me, what happens to your son. Either we will, we will get to a point with your child that, that, uh, that his, his self and his issues become manageable, or we won't. But that, that's the reality. That was the reality in the late 90s. That was the reality in the early aughts, 2000s, and so forth. And, and said, it's still the reality. Now, it's arguably, it's not as bad, but it's still part of the reality. That's just true. There's so much, so much there. Um, <laughs> I think, well, I want to go back to, if we may, is I want to go back to that time in the 90s. Because like, I think as you're telling this story of like, your life and your experience and your career, we've all had the benefit of watching 30-plus years of research unfold about this. And so as you describe this, sort of like hearing seeing this flood of people coming to your court who have all these social determinants of like poverty and mental health issues um, and health issues in general coming in that's leading up to crime and substance abuse and then seeing the need for a drug code and then seeing the need for a mental health code. You lived 
Well, like a lot of it, like, that seems like very logical to everyone sitting here. It's like, yeah, that's like the way that should have gone because we've had the benefit of all the research. But at the time, you didn't. I had no. At the, that, that at was the no, time, there was no such thing as research. At the, at the time, you were you were this you're this judge where you're seeing all these folks come in, and I'm going to assume, given that the, the the demographics of it is poor and black folks coming in, mm-hmm. you're this sole black judge here. At, what were your colleagues thinking of this when you first was like, I'm going to do drug court and mental health court at a time where you're coming out of the 80s, you're coming out of Ronald Reagan, where and we as a country essentially decided that being poor is your fault because you're morally worse than you we are. And you got jailed for it. And get jailed for it. Right, there was a and war on the this poor. This idea must have been crazy radical at the right. time to not just throw everyone in absolutely. jail. Absolutely. How great did question. your colleagues react to this? Uh, not, well. Man, I was in an, a, a meeting of the judges that were, we, we style the en banc meeting. That's all the judges come in the meeting. It was me and my, one of my mentors there who was Miriam Walter, uh, a woman. She was one of the first women elected uh, to a judgeship in Louisiana. She was uh, Jewish. She was, um, so it would be me and her. And that, there are pictures of, of, of the en banc meetings then. And so we always sat together, because they always set us together. It was me and Miriam, because then there were these, these uh, what it was, um, then um, 11 white men, and Miriam and I, okay? And so, so, so and, and Miriam was, um, she was, she was very, she was very radical, radical in the sense of how she looked at cross stuff and how she did stuff, she was. And then there was me. And so, so in terms of conversations around this, and it was a lot of, of the, a lot of this, in terms of um, in terms of what you're doing and how you're doing it and why you're doing it, it was a lot of that. Now there came no other judges. There were two other, three other judges actually, who were white and men who, who were in drug court, not mental health, but in drug court and doing drug court. So, they were they were in there with us in some sense, in some fashion. This mental health issue, however, is just, it became so, such a different thing to deal with. We, we, we still don't want to deal with that population uh, in the same form or same way we deal with the rest of the population. And even if you, mar- you get in today with the opioids and et cetera, it's, it's um, and this may be, be wrong or not correct for me to say, but it's easier to deal with that person who is drug addicted, even if it's opioid addicted, than that person who is drug addicted, opioid addicted, but also mentally ill. It is because of how we, including those who are looking at me in this room, how we think about people who have mental illness. And because of how we think about people who have mental illness drives how we deal with that. Now that's in 2018. If you go back to 1998, that's 20 years, huh? 1998, then of course it was, it, it was so hard to get this justice system to want to deal with this. And again, you shared Reagan. Reagan had opened up the, the hospital or the treatment, those, those hospital beds or those kinds of places that cared, opened them all up and put all those people out on the street. And so we were dealing with that population, but, but, but there's just how we think about people with that health issue is so different than how we think about people with all the other health issues. 
regardless of what those health issues are. And so if you go back 20 years, it's just, it, it, it was very difficult to get people in the justice system to think by, two, by 2000, 2001s and 2s that, that what I was doing was, was something that made any real sense because of course of how people thought about people with mental health issues. And that's just true. Yeah, must have been quite, quite radical uh, uh, at the time. Um, s since then, I mean, when we think now in, in Los Angeles, the, uh, the number one place for people living with mental illness mm -hmm. is in the carceral system. And so we're still seeing that we are incarcerating individuals for being mentally ill, we're incarcerating individuals for drug use, and as you said, um, the, oftentimes, the, sometimes they're both one and the, the same uh, as those that are mentally ill that have a very difficult time seeking care in our for-profit medical system, oftentimes uh, And our for-profit prison system. And our for-profit prison system mm -hmm. as well. Um, what, where, where, as you look into the future, I mean, I know that we've made, you've mentioned some modest reforms we've done with the, the prison system or the carceral system here in the state of Louisiana. But um, in terms of the, the, um, the drug courts and the mental health courts, the work that MHSD has done, um, and really your work, where do you see it kind of moving? I mean, you really got the ball rolling in a very innovative uh, manner, in one that really looked toward, um, toward justice, really, is what you were trying to, I think, with the way I'm, I'm hearing it, is that you were avoiding the carceral system and really focusing on the core problem, which is what we refer to as the social determinants of health now. How do you see that system moving forward in terms of the judicial system? One of the, the, the best things that is, has happened is um, for us to, to realize that, um, that it makes no sense for us to try and incarcerate ourselves out of this. That makes no sense, and it makes no sense it, it, it makes no sense because it's too expensive. And that's the reason. I mean, it's not necessarily because we, we think that we ought to treat people better necessarily, that we ought to think around how to provide care for people in a much, ways that make much more sense, but we at least have come to the realization that it is too expensive to continue doing what we have done historically. And so, if no other thing that has happened, that's a good thing that's happened because that has made us now look across how we can reduce the cost in the justice system, how we can reduce cost. And, and so, okay, then, okay, then that's, that's, if that's how we now, the collective, we think about this, then let's, let's use that thought process in terms of how we can better treat people with health issues. And that, again, just driving home the notion that, well, it's too, much, it's, too, it's too expensive to continue doing what we've historically done, so let's try to do it better. So let's then look at the population that is in jail. And, and again, the, so the estimates range from 40% or, or more of the people who are either in a, in a jail setting like New Orleans in this jail or in the, the prison system in Louisiana have behavioral health issues, they drug and mental health issues. I actually think, so a friend of mine actually does this work, mm -hmm. the number is 80. It's 80% well, of people in jail committed their crime while under the influence. See, I agree with that. 
but the, the, but the people who, who we're trying to sell this to, though, they don't want to hear that 80 because that makes them throw bone crazy in terms of how they act and think. So if you say 40, okay, 40, maybe we can kind of deal with 40. But, but regardless, though, okay, you have this over, overwhelmed system that, that has in it these people with all of these, these health issues. And so maybe then we need to think about both what to do with them in it, with the health issues, but then also how to, to, to deal with them when they get out of it. And so from a re-entering population perspective, how we can, can meet them at the door. And from that, if, if, if my wife Dee was here, who's a social worker, she would say, you know, you got to find them. You got to meet them where they are. You're not... I hope there's no social workers in here because they don't. I sometimes say the wrong thing, but <laughs> but you have to meet them where they are. And so if that's where they are, and and then they're coming out the door, then you pick them up at the door. So you 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 then you try, and 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 start defining how we do care for them from the walk out the door. In the jail, you it's still. There's a, there was an article in the, in the Advocate, I think the Advocate, about a week or three ago about the, the, the guy who runs the jail in New Orleans about his desire to, uh, to enlarge it to deal with the mental health population because they don't have beds anymore in, in a prison in St. Gabriel for that population, so to enlarge it here to deal. And, uh, and well... But, but the, the argument against that is simply people shouldn't be in jail because they're sick. Yeah, true I don't that. give a shit. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> we were going to get one eventually. I don't care why. They, what, they shouldn't be in jail just because they, they have an illness, because they're sick. And, that's, and so if you say then they're in jail, they should be in jail because of what they are accused of doing. The horrific thing, if it is, they did something horrific, if they have a bad background and you think that they're going to do other bad things, then that's a reason, that's, that could be a reason for people to be incarcerated. But if the people are incarcerated because they, are, they have a mental illness, then they shouldn't be in jail at all. And the jail shouldn't be designing care for them. See, that's the problem in California. The jail shouldn't be designing care for people who are only in it because they are sick. People who have health issues should be treated by the health care providers outside of jail, not in jail. Jail should only be a place for people who can't be out of it. Right. And that's, that's how we, change, we, we have to change how we think about jail and prison, how we think about it. The part changing how we think about it has come as a result of, our again, our ideas that we can't continue spending all of this money we spend. So if that's how you thought, you're right. We can't continue spending all this money we, think we spend, so let's change how we think about it. Right, and I just would be remiss in not saying that, that uh, Governor Jindal had a large part to do with the mental illness uh, issues that we're seeing uh, in the state of Louisiana, certainly in Orleans Parish, by closing down some of the uh, public facilities mm -hmm. for mental illness here. As a, as a judge, uh, recently, uh, amend Amendment 2, by, uh, who was written by J.P. Morrell, Senator Morrell, um, wrote an uh, excellent piece of legislative, legislate, uh, legislative law that became law that the governor signed. What was that like for you, um, uh, overseeing the the Orleans Parish Prison or the Orleans Parish Criminal Courts to see that 
we were one of two states, and we were a state that, again, the, another remnant uh, of Jim Crow laws where folks were being sent off to jail when they were, when it was attended to, or 11 to one split uh, on a jury when the rest of the country minus Oregon was at 12-0. That happened with, with such frequency uh, in the criminal court to see those kinds of decisions that you, if you go back to the 80s when we were trying cases in the 80s before, when the, the jury composition in the 80s uh, or for that matter, I started this in the late 70s, actually trying cases, but the jury composition was, was overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly white men. Uh, in, in Louisiana, as, as late as uh, the middle 70s, in the criminal district court. Well, let me go back. In 74, we got a new constitution in Louisiana, women right. in this room, and it's in 74 right. that we actually sent women jury subpoenas. Women, we didn't even send women in Louisiana jury subpoenas because we didn't, we didn't expect women to come to jury. You could volunteer as a woman for jury duty, but that's how you got there. Uh, so in the, middle, in, the, in the middle 70s in Louisiana, you had court courts that were not only predominantly white and predominantly male, but the predominantly maleness of it continued in terms of the secretary, the court reporter, the minute clerk, it was all men. And so you, this is, this is how, we, how we went about this. And so then you get to juries, which were, which were again, you know, the 12 angry men, right? We all saw the movie, the 12 angry men. Well, the 12 angry men were still playing out in Louisiana in 76 and 77 and 78 and 1980, you were still seeing this. So you would see a woman of three sprinkled in this, but it was predominantly white men who were doing this. And so then you get into from a guy who is trying cases, not only trying cases in New Orleans, but again, I go back to Jack Nelson, who knew these white judges around some other places in Louisiana. This is in the early 80s, who were still who were former members of the Ku Klux Klan. There was one specifically in St. Bernard Parish, who was a former Grand Dragon in the Ku Klux Klan. Well, he would literally make me take cases in this man's court just to make him crazy. But it was to see these jury compositions and to know these jury compositions and how they were, and then you get into the 90s and you're seeing basically the seeing the same thing, and you're seeing now this sprinkling of African Americans of black people on the juries, but you're also seeing similarly results because again the 10-2 thing, and you're seeing that play out. So, so for JP to do what he did. Is, a, is an amazing thing, and I know he said it, to get that through Louisiana and to get it to the point where it got out the legislature and to get it to the point where, where uh, what, 70% of the voters, damn this, almost 70% yeah. of the voters voted in favor of it. That's, a, that's a, an amazing feat, to be honest with you, and it maybe boards well for futureness in terms of how Louisiana goes forward with stuff. That may board well. But yes, I... I saw that. It, it's not for me uh, uh, something that I read about. It's it's not it's not it's not so it's not that for me. It, it's what I literally saw play out, and uh, over and over. And so now we in in the 18, and and of course, of course now we will have 
hopefully different results. Yeah. And just briefly for folks who may not know what we're talking about, what we're talking about is a unanimous, unanimous juries um, bill that was passed last legislature and then voted this past fall by the Louisiana um, people. It stems from a law that was included into the 1899 Louisiana Constitution that was explicitly white supremacist and explicitly created to keep people of color off of juries. At the time in 1899, it set the... Um, the bar for a felony conviction in Louisiana was only nine out of 12. So you could go to jail for life with three people disagreeing. And that was true, as the judge said, until the 70s, when it changed in the 74 convention, we made it 10, which at the time was a- Right, um, they fixed it. They fixed it and made it 10, which at the time was um, a compromise. Um, a study that the advocate did over a six year period showed that over 40% of convictions in Louisiana um, of felony cases were, um, became guilty on only 10 jurors. And, so, and that was in the last six years. So you can imagine how bad it was when the judge was getting into the criminal justice system and as a black person, you really had no chance. Um, it's a system that it makes it really obvious why until last year, thank you Oklahoma, we were the largest incarcerating state in the entire world. Um, and so as, as the judge said, it was an enormous, enormous piece of legislation that's gonna have far reaching effects on our criminal justice system in Louisiana. And I can't imagine being a judge seeing just defendant after defendant of these like poor black kids coming up, knowing that it's only yes. going to take 10, yes. 10 jurors to convict them, knowing that the majority of them have issues in front of you that haven't been met their whole lives, knowing that they're not going to get met going to the justice system, and then you've just got to sort of do your job somehow. Like, I, like, I honestly don't know how you didn't just start letting people go. Yes. Like, I don't... I tried to do that too. <laughs> it didn't work, but I tried to do that too. And again, as I shared earlier, though, I, I, I tried to quit twice. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. actually three times. I tried to quit at the end of six. I tried to quit at the end of 12. And then it, and by the time I got to 17 years in, I quit. So it turns because out you I couldn't, couldn't solve systemic racism in six years? I thought, I, I thought, because, um, you know, I'm Cal, That's you know? Optimism. That was optimism right there. I'm Cal. Cal, you know, I'm, you know I'm, as I shared, I mean, I thought I, I didn't need but six years. Come on, six years. I could get all of this done in six years. I mean, come on. Um, I never got it done, though. Judge, I, I would be remiss on, on today as we recognize and celebrate uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Day. Uh, another person in your life that uh, really was an icon of American justice, and that's Thurgood uh, Marshall, uh, who became a Supreme Court uh, justice. But your father was uh, a plaintiff for, yes. and if that's something that you could talk to us uh, about. And did you meet, did you yes. meet uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall? I, I, I met this man in, uh, in 56 maybe, 56, I'm not quite sure what year that was. My, my father was a plaintiff in a, a lawsuit that he filed with A.P. Turo, hearing that Thurgood Marshall filed with A.P. Turo here, but he was one of the plaintiffs, this is in 1949, he was one of the plaintiffs uh, who sued the Louisiana for equal pay for teachers. Because of course, if it was a separate but equal system, then the teacher should be paid equally. That was yeah. the dependent. That was how the lawsuit was styled. And Thurgood Marshall was the uh, one, one with AP Turo was lawyers in that lawsuit, and my father was. So after Brown versus the Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas Board, this is 1954, was decided. Uh, Thurgood Marshall now comes around the South, and he's you know he's Thurgood Marshall. He comes around and he's doing tours, and he comes to my elementary school. Now, 
I had, now keep in mind, now I'm eight, nine years old, and, uh, and I've, you know, I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm in the room saying, oh my God, this is Thurgood Marshall. I don't know who the heck Thurgood Marshall is. I have no <laughs> idea who he is. I have no clue, no clue whatsoever. All I know is he's this tall, good-looking black man uh, who was impeccably dressed, uh, who was, who was well, obviously well-spoken, and I mean, he was, and all I could think of, man, I won't be like that guy when I grow up. I had no idea what that guy, or who the guy was, or what the guy did, yeah. none whatsoever. But, but, uh, but he, he, and I say this to this day when I go to places and speak to children, because you don't know, Dr. Derry, the kind of impression you can make on children. You don't know. You don't know the kinds of impression you can make on children when you walk in that room and you, and you give of yourself to kids and they see you as a model of behavior or a model of what they would like to be when they become grown. And your mere presence there, to this day, I always say when I'm in a room with children, there's one here. There's one child in this room, but the mere fact that I'm here that child will be, and I will see that child later, because that child will be, that child will come, that child will, 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 will. And that's my belief, and I, that, that comes from that moment in time when I saw this good-looking man standing uh, and well-dressed in a suit. And I think that still plays out today, I do. Thank you for sharing. I, I have one sort of like, Councilman, uh, Councilman Jason Williams tells all these stories about like what being your court was like. Um, is it true that you used to read uh, Langston Hughes, Langston Hughes, two defendants, while before proceeding, and everyone just had to like. I read, I read, I read Jason. With all respect to Jason, he's still <laughs> cute with his little self. But I, um, I read, I read Langston Hughes because he only came. I guess the times he came, I was reading Langston Hughes. I read more than Langston Hughes poetry. I read also Robert Frost. Robert Frost is one of my favorite poets, along with Langston Hughes, along with you know Dr. Angelo, along, along, along. But I read, I read poetry all the time. I read poetry in my room. Here's one of them. I, which one was that? This is I, I too sing America. Oh, I, that too sing America was one of my one of my favorites, and I would do a couple of stanzas of that. I would talk about him, but I would also bring kids, younger kids in the court. I would have teachers like you bring their kids in the court. And you know, he did a whole host of poems for children. Mm -hmm. He did these poems for children. And I would have them come in the court and I would have them read these poems, which were just amazing things he did for just kids. I would have them do it. I would especially did, he wrote this poem uh, called Daybreak in Alabama. And Daybreak in Alabama, he, he, he styles it as when he was going uh, to, um, golly, I'm blanking on the school in New York. But it's, I forgot what, what college it is. Of course, white college in New York. He was going to, and he'd talk about, and he would talk about it, and, and the poem speaks about that. But he, he speaks about it because he wanted to see Daybreak, and by his school in, in, in New York, he wanted to see daybreak come to Alabama in terms of, mm -hmm. in terms of how through all of this process, processes, daybreak would come to Alabama. I don't know, we have to go in a second, but I have to ask, 
the obvious question, why? Why did you read poetry to your I love poetry. I told you I wanted to be a history teacher. I love poetry. <laughs> I wanted to be a history so teacher. So it was just pure personal my, my wife just came in and she's not going old. But I wanted to be a history teacher. That's what I really wanted to be. So I, I always, I, and I used to write poetry. I say I used to write poetry when my brain worked better. Yeah. But I wrote bad poems. You know, you know how you, <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote bad poems, bad poetry. But... But I love poetry, and I—I I mean, again, going back to Robert Frost. But I love—I love poetry. Yeah. And one of my favorites from Robert Frost is uh, what Fifty said, because it's a great poem for those who are making fifty. I'm making them almost eighty, but those who are making fifty. <laughs> I couldn't tell. I just made fifty. So. But, uh, but it's Kenny a great made fifty-five poem. last week, but, uh, so what, it don't crack. What, <laughs> there you go, my brother. Go on, man. <laughs> but uh, what fifty said, and I always I thought that he would write a poem as he aged. He would write a poem, you know, about what seventy said or what eighty said, and I'm working on that. Not well myself. <laughs> yeah. um, and I know we're, we're out of time. So I, I just want to say, like, on a personal note, I am so honored that, to have gotten to, like, interview um, and the time that you spent with us today. It's amazing to me and hear you talk about experiences where I think that you are such an example of the idea that just one person can really make a difference. Because, like, here you are, this, like, black lawyer that then judge in this system that's specifically set up to incarcerate as many young black people as possible. And you're seeing this torrent of folks coming in. And at a time when nowhere else was, you decided to do something different. Despite people, I'm sure that they were more than just like this, when you said, hey, instead of sending these kids to jail, I'm gonna do this other thing that no one's done before. I'm sure there was, it was a yeah, lot it was a lot more aggressive than them just being like, well, I think that's not a good job, Calvin. Like, I think, I, I think you should have like glossed over the, pre the pressure you probably got in response to that. Um, and it's like utterly amazing what you have done um, and the difference that you've made in our city and our state is better because, because you were. Well, th thank you very much. Both of you, thank you very much for allowing me to share. Yeah. I really appreciate this. Thank you I, was, I can't get past the, the poetry thing. Because the thing is that like, I've, I've been in court one time for jury duty and it's so like, if you've never been in court, it's so like, like procedural. It's almost like medical in the way that it's just like sanitized and procedural and that's just there's so much something so humanistic by like taking a moment and like reading poetry and it, it vibes with everything else like I've learned about you and the way that you see people is that you see people in this like humanist way even as like a judge deciding what their life is going to be essentially. I, I shared with you a good Jack Nelson who was my again guru but Jack wanted me to be different and uh, I wore blue robe okay Jack wanted wore me blue robe? I wore blue robe Jack wanted me to be different. And so, yeah, I did all of that. And so in, in terms of my court, you know, that's black history. This is January. That's black history. In February, we had black history. And I would do black history. That right? And then March is women's history women. And March 8th is International Women's Day. And so I would do women's history in March. And then I would, I would, I would do mental health. is mental health month in May. And I'd do, so I did all that. Then I would do, uh, again, history. And again, a lot of civil rights, a lot of civil war stuff. I would talk about, um, in the summer, I would talk about the, the, the battle at Port Hudson that gets fought and the black soldiers that come from New Orleans, da 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 So I'd do all of that. And I didn't give a crap. I didn't give a crap if, if I, didn't, I didn't care. 
Cause you know, hey, so you, you know, were a history teacher. The people just had to be in your class. They were legally required to be in your class. I wanted to be a history teacher. I didn't really. I never was that good a lawyer. To be honest with you, I was much better can, history. Uh, I, can I get you to? Uh, can we get you to read this then? A, re- a, a, a live reading. Oh Lord, a Langston, I too sang America. I am the darker brother. They sent me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too, I too am America. Uh, I, you know, I, still, I still get a kind of chill when I say yeah. that, when I read that. Yeah. I too am America. Judge Calvin Johnson, everybody. Thank you so much. Yeah.